Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Do you think your vote matters? Yes, of course. Yeah, I think my vote matters. Because if it doesn't, they can take me off the tax rolls. I live in D.C., and D.C. is pretty much a foregone conclusion. Nope, I really don't. You know, politicians are just not about what they say. I don't like voting for people. No way. What the hell am I vote for you for? I don't know you. You see what I'm saying? So that makes you not even want to vote. I think votes matter, specifically on a smaller scale. So, like, state and local governments. The person you voted for may not win. Even though you lose, you still got to be confident. Do you feel like voting is enough? Wow, that's also a really complex question. No, um, we need to be engaged. My goodness, the country's falling apart in my opinion. No, I, I feel like voting is kind of like giving your kid an iPad, where it's like, you don't have to deal with it. Like, oh, I just did my duty. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. So one reason we chose our show's new name is we get a lot of notes from listeners. And, you know, sometimes they're voicemails, sometimes they're emails. I've gotten, like, actual mailed written notes. And it's very cool because these notes, they're our DNA, right? Like, they connect us, they tell us what you're thinking, and sometimes... They inspire us to make entirely new episodes. And that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to dig into one voicemail you sent us about voting. But first, I do want to share some of the other messages you've been sending us recently because I love them. So let's do a listener mailbag. And I'm joined, as always, by our producer, Kusha Navadar. Hey, Kusha. Hey, Kai. So what do you got for us in this mailbag? Yeah. So first, just thanks to everyone who sent in a message. I got to say, it was really hard to narrow down those messages for the past couple of months. Our recent episodes, like you said, really do seem to have struck a lot of chords out there. So let's start with a response to a recent episode we did called Digital Life is a Moral Mess. This episode was about our lives online, how some technology and some of our own actions online are causing harm we might not see immediately. During the episode, we talked about the story of Facebook. And the week after the episode aired, we got this voicemail. Hey, Kai and Kusha. This is Pete from California, uh, responding to this week's show on moral dilemmas in tech. I worked at Facebook from 2007 to 2013, originally as the technical writer on the developer platform team. Uh, Richie Songby, who you quoted in the episode, was product manager for our team, and we worked closely together for a couple of years. It was uh, kind of tough being there during that time. A number of us, including Gucci, you know, a couple times, tried to push back against Zuck and his zeal, but it was an uphill battle. So I had to make the choice between following my moral compass or just keeping my head down and just doing my job. As an early employee with stock options, I opted for the latter. 
I could have walked away and left a lot of money on the table, but by staying, it changed my life and my family's. Before Facebook, I never dreamed I could have what I now have. So I guess you could say my principles had a price. First of all, I just want to thank you, Pete, for sending this message and kind of putting yourself on the line like that. It's a reminder of how difficult these choices are at the individual level, especially when, you know, like you said, they could totally change your family's life. And Kai, it also feels super relevant right now with what's going on at Twitter with Elon Musk taking over. That deal was actually completed this past week, and it leaves one person largely in control of the entire platform. And now with questions about free speech and what Twitter will become hanging in the air, I imagine there are a lot of employees going through a similar struggle as Pete. Well, also, Kusha, I know we got a huge response to an episode we did a couple of weeks ago about conspiracy theories. And we asked listeners how conspiracy theories have shown up in their own lives. So here's a couple of those. The way that conspiracy theories came into my life was through a 30-plus year friendship, someone that I had known since childhood. We grew up together. Uh, We were in each other's weddings at the birth of each other's babies. We were like sisters. And then leading into um, the COVID pandemic, I just noticed how many QAnon conspiracies that she bought into, not from her telling me directly, but from her online activity, which I don't think she realized I could see. I think that um, her right-leaning beliefs combined with family pressure, combined with the pandemic, um, set her off. And and she was not the same person. Like, we attempted to talk about it. Um, me and my family had lost quite a few people from the COVID pandemic, and um, she did not care. And that is what broke us up eventually. It's not that her beliefs were different. She didn't care about what kind of harm she was perpetuating. And that wasn't the person that I was friends with. So conspiracies have shown up in my life via this friendship and really changed this person that I knew and loved for um, three decades uh, hello, Kai and friends. My name is Yurik. I live in Ottawa. For the past uh, couple of years, I've been uh, recovering from a brain injury and on disability leave. And because of that, I spend a great deal of time walking in my local park as part of my therapy. And what I've found very interesting is that I've met a number of people who are conspiracy theorists. In many ways, because I'm recovering from an injury, I don't have the stamina to have complex conversations about infuriating issues. And so I've largely just used a tactic of changing the subject. And uh, I redirect in a way that often the people I'm talking to seem at least to not comprehend that they have been redirected. What has happened is that in about four cases, they have stopped talking to me entirely about the conspiracy theories. So I wonder if there are psychologists who work specifically on the psychology of of conspiracy, how redirecting signals to conspiracy theorists that their theories um, simply are not acceptable or don't carry enough weight or value to be somehow engaged with or legitimized. Thank you so much for your thoughtful and engaging radio. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Yeah, it's so interesting to think about strategies for dealing with this stuff. And and we did talk about some of those strategies in the episode. So if you missed that, it's in your podcast feed and we'll link to it in the show notes for this one. And Nancy's message, of course, is so affecting and we got tons of stuff like that. So we're going to keep sharing them in our Instagram feed as well. That's Notes with Kai. That's K-A-I. And Kai, I've been saving one more message which you mentioned at the top. Last month, we did an episode called Your Vote Matters. We were trying to figure out how we could make voting better in the United States, especially as so many midterm and local elections really suffer from low participation. Now, after that episode, we received this message from a longtime listener. Hi, this is Edward. I'm a longtime New Yorker now living in Canada. I feel the message, just go vote, is like the new version of thoughts and prayers. A lot of us have been voting a long time and have seen virtually no progress on the issues that matter most. Of course I vote, but I'm also not sanguine that most people's votes have much impact on policy on the urgent issues that matter most, like the climate emergency or issues of racial and economic justice. I know your episode focused more on the impact our votes can make at the local level, but my gut instinct is just telling folks, just be sure to vote to save a crumbling democracy. It's a bit like telling people, skip the straw so we can save the environment. I feel this sort of messaging misleads us about the scope of the corruption in our system of governance. Edward, we really were struck by your analogy here, saying go vote to fix a broken democracy is kind of like the new thoughts and prayers. And I just want to say, to be clear, I am someone who truly believes in voting. And honestly, I do get impatient with most arguments about why it's not valuable. But I hear Edward, there there does feel like there's a gap between the immediacy of the problems with our democracy and the primary tool available for solving those problems. And we want to dig into that a bit tonight. So we called up someone who we often talk to about voting, but who also has a deep understanding of political engagement and movements well beyond the voting booth. Carol Anderson is author of the best-selling book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, among other titles, and a professor of African-American studies at Emory University in Atlanta. And welcome back to the show, Professor Anderson. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Kai. And listeners, you can help us think this through as well. If you also feel like voting is an insufficient response to the challenges of our time, and yet you do still vote, why? Let let us in on your thinking. What motivates you to vote despite your frustrations? And what else do you do alongside voting? Okay, so Professor Anderson, as a quick table setter here, uh, while we wait for those calls to come in, Respond directly to Edward's concern. So he's asking, if democracy itself is broken, how is voting going to fix that? And again, he is still voting. So, you know, me or you telling him you got to go vote isn't really an answer for him. But what would you say to Edward? Voting is part and parcel. It is one of the key elements in democracy. One of the reasons why it's so broken is that the right to vote has been systematically attacked. And, and so it has led to this sense that, that it, it feels futile, but it is not. Um, and when I say it's part and parcel, it's not just go vote. It is holding our elected officials accountable. It is going to school board meetings. It is knowing what's on the city council agenda and weighing in. It is writing them. It is emailing them. It is full engagement. The, what they say, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Mm. Um, and so by not being eternally vigilant, 
and I'm going to give a, an example. The 2010 midterm, we saw a massive reduction in the number of voters, Democratic voters, who came out to vote. And what happened is that you had a massive sweep, a takeover, as it were, of, of over 27 um, state legislatures and governorships. With that, they began to draw the maps. They being the, the Republican Party. The congressional and legislative maps. And they began to put forth a series of laws because they now controlled the states. And so as your listener talked about, I think it has to do something with the local area. I think of uh, David Pepper's Laboratories of Autocracy, where he talks about what happens at the state government level has so much to do with the quality of our lives. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're looking at here when the maps were overdrawn. So part of the problem here is that the that, that not voting led to a rigging of the system uh, against folks like Edward. Okay, well, we're going to get way more into this here after a quick break. It's Notes from America. I'm talking with historian and voting rights scholar Carol Anderson about what it means to vote in a time when democracy itself isn't really working. We'll take your calls and dig further into what Dr. Anderson has to say after a break. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. A couple of weeks ago, we did an episode about conspiracy theories. We asked listeners about how conspiracy theories have shown up in their own lives. Here's one response we received from a listener named Beth. I used to teach middle school and I would have kids that would come in parroting their parents' beliefs. Um, and one kid in particular, she came in and said, well, what if all Muslims do want to kill us? And because her mom genuinely believed that, and we had Muslim students in the class that she was friends with, and she knew they were Muslim, and it just didn't cross her mind. And so I usually tried to fight it with logic. I left teaching before the 2020 election, which I'm really glad about because I probably didn't get the worst of the conspiracy theories, but kids would often come in parroting their parents' weird beliefs about Trump, about how he was some savior. It was just certain kids that really hadn't learned to see past their parents' beliefs yet that were the problem. Thanks, Beth. And thanks to everyone who's been sending us messages. Please keep it up. We love getting them. You can record your message right on our website. The address is notesfromamerica.org. Just click on the green button that's a little ways down the page that says start recording. You can also email us. Our address is notes at wnyc.org. Thanks. Talk to you soon. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.
It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by Professor Carol Anderson, author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, among other titles. We've asked her to respond to a listener who says telling people to vote in order to save a crumbling democracy is kind of like sending thoughts and prayers in response to gun violence. And listeners, you can help us think about this as well. If you also feel like voting is an insufficient response to the challenges of our time, and yet you do still vote, why? Let us in on your thinking on this. What motivates you to vote despite your frustrations? And what else do you do alongside voting? And Dr. Anderson, just to follow up on the point you started making before the break, you mentioned the 2010 midterms in which there was a sweep of state legislatures uh, by Republican candidates. And just to flesh out that moment and why you bring it up, are you arguing that that election, those were anti-democratic candidates and that that was the beginning of our concerns now with democracy? We have had this concern with democracy since at least Reconstruction. <laughs> Let's be really clear. <laughs> okay. um, so, But what we saw in 2010 was a thing called Red Map that was about uh, uh, Republicans being able to draw the maps that would create an unrepresentative representative government. So for instance, in Pennsylvania, which was a state that had about, it was almost balanced between Republicans and Democrats. When Republicans gained control of that legislature, they re redrew the map so that it was like 12-7. And then afterwards, they redrew the maps again so that it was 13 Republicans to five Democrats. And what you see with that kind of control is that you're able to then move through legislation that does not respond, that is not representative. When you're looking at the polls, you're seeing people are concerned about gun safety laws. They're concerned about quality public school education. They're concerned about climate change. But you're seeing laws instead dealing with voter suppression. You're seeing laws that deal with clamping down on reproductive rights. You're seeing laws that are about banishing the teaching of real American history, things that don't resonate with the broader population. And that's why voting is so important. So we get real representatives in power that are reflecting the needs and the wants and the desires of the people. Let's go to a caller, I think, who also wants to respond to our listener, Edward, uh, Marsha in Brooklyn. Marsha, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Um, so first of all, I want to say, yes, I'm from Brooklyn, but I was raised in southwestern Pennsylvania. Okay. So I'm actually calling from there where I'm working on political campaigns to address just what your guest just spoke about. So here's what I responded to what Edward said. I also have felt this sort of banality of just go vote. Um, and being equivalent to like, you know, you're in my thoughts and prayers without actually accomplishing anything. And I feel that people like you and your shows and other public radio shows and other news media have a responsibility to say to people, remind them of how you find out locally who your candidates are, mm. what their positions are, how you can go to a website and see what election district you're in who's running for the local judges, who, where, because a lot of decisions made in lower courts that eventually get bumped up affect everybody's life. And I remember here, I have a somewhat progressive assembly person in my section of Brooklyn. They sent out a list of judges to vote for um, in our primaries, and I hadn't heard of all of these candidates, although I did know some. And I went online and I looked at those candidates. I looked at the people running against them in the primaries. 
And I made a list to take with me into the voting booth. And not everybody does that. And I'd like to see more of this type of specificity out there in whatever media is able to do to guide people on how to become active voters. I I hear that. And thank you, Marcia. So part of it, what Marcia's talking about is like, we just need more effective kinds of voting in the first instance, uh, and that all of us in media have a job to do in that regard. Um, And I totally agree, Marcia. One thing I do want to note, Professor Anderson, is that so far this midterm election, we are in fact seeing record turnout among early voters. Our our listener who inspired this conversation called us in response to a show that we aired before voting began when we were thinking about the fact that, you know, historically turnout is quite low in midterms. But so far this year, uh, according to the U.S. Elections Project, more than 21 million people have already voted, which way past, way past anything we've seen before at this mark. And in Georgia, where you're at, the turnout is close to double what it was in 2018. And I just wonder what you think all of these numbers are owing to. I think they're speaking to the sense of crisis that this democracy is in because we have so many election deniers who are on the ballot. And if these folks get their hands on the levers of power, we don't have to have an insurrection in January 6th in 2024, because they will be the ones who will be certifying the election and erasing our votes. There's that acknowledgement about what this election means. 2022 is absolutely essential. And it also means that you've got these incredible organizations that are out there doing that grassroots organizing and mobilizing to get folks to the polls, to alert folks to who the candidates are and what their value systems are, what their policies are. And that kind of grassroots work is designed to overcome all of the barriers that these state legislatures have put in place to block and to obstruct the right to vote. Let's take the example of Georgia a a little deeper here, actually, because, you know, again, I'm just I am still struck by Edwards, uh, the tautology, I guess, that he's trying to point us to. So using the example of Georgia, this record turnout we're seeing, I hear what you're saying, like as a defensive mechanism, right, like to stop further erosion of democracy. I can see how that huge turnout is going to stop new anti-democratic candidates from getting in office and overturning future elections. But as a pro-democracy act, right, like to fix the existing problem, spell out for me how this huge turnout in Georgia right now would lead to fixing the previous problem of a broken democracy. Okay, so part of what we have been dealing with, and let me go back to 2010 again, is we've been fighting this rear guard action with voter suppression laws coming up. What you're seeing on the ballot now are folks who believe in democracy and getting those folks in office can mean that we can begin to deal with the cost of of prescription drugs. We can begin to deal with climate change. We can begin to, to lower those barriers to access to the ballot box. We can begin to think through what a clearly multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, multilingual democracy really looks like, how vibrant it could be. We would have people in power who aren't afraid of it. Because right now, that's what this backlash is about. It is people who are afraid of a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, multilingual democracy. And so what they want is what they talk about a Christian theocracy, where they can stuff their religion down everybody's throats and put folks what they believe back in their place. No. 
And so having people who believe in democracy in power can mean things. I mean, so when you think about what the 2020 election actually did, we're having a rise in manufacturing jobs. We're having a heavy investment in clean energy. We're having uh, lowered costs for Medicare, for insulin It capped at $35 a month. It would have been more except you had the Republicans blocking it for everybody. So Medicare is for folks who are on Medicare, their insulin is capped at $35. So that's what this election is about. It's not just a rear guard action. It is forward thinking well, as well. And I can see certainly on particular policies. And listen, I mean, if so you're you're taking off the priorities of Democratic voters. And um, but I you certainly can't argue that the people who voted for Donald Trump did not get what they were voting for, that they did not get the change that they sought um, through that vote. Um, so I hear that on uh, on particular policies. It's this democracy piece that becomes hard to understand. Understand. Let's keep pulling this along because you're because you're getting my attention. Let's let's go to Mike in Harlem. Mike, hi Kai, and congratulations on the the new show and going national. But Thank I want to say real quickly, Tony Morrison in an interview back in the '90s or the 2000s in a TV interview, she said she voted regularly because, and I'm quoting or paraphrasing, it was like saying a small prayer by the side of the road. And that's kind of how I feel. Mm. I do it. I vote regularly, even in uh, off-year elections or midterms. And it's not because I necessarily think it makes a difference. Maybe it does at the local level, but, you know, problems with the Electoral College and all of that. National elections, I have a problem. But I think I vote because people died. I'm African-American, and people died and were... Um, assaulted, jailed, etc., for the right to vote. So I do it because I see it as a, a sacred thing to do. Mm. I do it on election day, and it's kind of sacred to me. But looking at the Republican Party and the, you know, which has become a party of basically white supremacy and white grievance and, you know, pro-business, anti-worker, and looking at the Democratic Party, you know, <sighs> I'm not crazy about the Democrats either. I tend to vote for uh, Democrats, but I'm not, for example, I'm not crazy about Joe Biden. I remember his history from the 70s, going back to the 70s mm -hmm. with the, mm -hmm. the issue of busing. I'm not crazy about uh, Hochul, who's the Democratic in, in nominee for governor in New York. I'm not crazy about a lot of them, but I do it because I know that people died Mm -hmm. and were assaulted and jailed. And so it's sort of like a sacred thing that I do. Mm. Thank you for that, Mike. You do it because it is something that is special to you. Uh, we got a bunch of uh, comments from uh, YouTube and Twitter. Crystal says on YouTube says voting and mutual aid are important. Community is often filling in the gaps left by the legislature. Every family should have access to formula and diapers, but if they don't, then we buy them. So it's uh, there's a there's an and here uh, that is important for Crystal, and I agree with you, Crystal. But let me ask you this, Professor Anderson: How I imagine you have a lot of conversations about voting, given your work. I imagine a lot of people, it's kind of like, you know, uh, when you meet a doctor and you want to talk to the doctor about your ailments, I imagine a lot of people want to give you their opinions about voting. 
And is there a through line that you hear amongst people who share, again, our original caller Edwards concern that say, I vote, but I'm frustrated by it, or even I don't, I'm, you know, I don't believe and I don't vote it. Is there a through line that you hear that, that, that is just like the most common sentiment amongst those folks? I think the through line is the sense of frustration that things aren't better. And so part of it is to understand why things aren't better. Um, it is to understand how legislation gets blocked. It is to understand how you need, because of the ways that the maps are rigged now, you need exponentially more Democratic voters to be able to end up getting comparable in terms of the number of seats. It is to understand that it is frustration that the issues yeah. in the criminal justice system haven't been solved and that we get this kind of fear mongering about crime, 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 and that that crime is consistently defined as black people and not as the folks who uh, steal government documents and stash them at their resort um, in Florida or who exorbitantly overcharge the government for housing the the secret service um or it's funny because i mean a lot of the stuff that you're talking about these are the kinds of things where it is like it is the case people are frustrated because it is the case that they're not a one-to-one relationship between voting and changing that thing i mean I'm thinking about this past weekend, the news uh, around political violence. Nancy Pelosi's husband was nearly murdered in his own home in an act of political violence this past week, which is something that seems increasingly ordinary. And and voting itself seems like a wholly insufficient, unsatisfying response to that. So I can see where that frustration comes in. Yeah. and But part of that we have to understand is that the folks who are in power now have basically normalize political violence. You hear them out on the campaign trail, you hear them in their speeches, and you see the kind of backlash, for instance, um, for the January 6th committee, right? That is going after the folks who, who tried to overthrow the US government and wipe away 81 million votes. And you get congressional leaders talking about, oh, this was just a tourist visit. No, you had 140 cops injured. You had people die. This was not a tourist visit, but that gaslighting um, to make political violence normalized. The head of the Republican National Committee, she looked at January 6th and said, oh, this was legitimate political discourse. And so part of what we have to do is not to do the both sidesism because both sides aren't saying that political violence is cool. You've and so, got, you, but your point being that like, if we didn't have elected officials at the highest order saying political violence is cool, maybe we wouldn't have so much political violence. And that is something that voting could fix. Yes, that is something that voting really does affect. And it also affects things like the issue of funding, adequate funding for the IRS um, to be able to go after these millionaire and billionaire tax cheats, you know, the people who aren't paying their fair share in taxes. Um, and you saw a massive backlash from the Republicans who then defined it as an army of 87,000 who are IRS agents who are coming after you. They're not coming after you and me. They're coming after the billionaires and the millionaires who aren't paying their fair share. So voting matters in terms of public policy. 
in 30 seconds that we've got left for this conversation for the person who hears all that and is like, okay, but I'm tired. I do that all the time and I'm not seeing the change. What is your message? Is that not doing it makes it worse. Not doing it, not engaging. It is. It requires our engagement. It requires not just voting. We must vote in every election, up ballot, down ballot. But we must also hold folks accountable. We must talk to our friends and our relatives. We must do the heavy lifting of democracy and knowing who these candidates are, what their value systems are, what their policies are, and what they aren't. Okay. Carol Anderson is author of the best-selling book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, among other titles, and a professor of African-American studies at Emory University in Atlanta. Professor Anderson, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find us on both Instagram and Twitter at Notes with Kai. Matthew Miranda was our live engineer this week. Music and mixing by Jared Paul and Mike Kutchman. A special thanks to Jenny Lawton for editing help this week. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Vanessa Handy, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. And I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us tonight. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>